The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Today FM. It all happens here. I'm delighted we have Robert Harris back with us again. One of the great British novelists is so popular, such great bestsellers. And he has a new novel called Act of Oblivion, which is his 15th. Robert Harris, thank you so much for being with us here on The Last Word in Today FM. So you tell us what this book is all about. OK. Um, a couple of years ago, I saw a phrase on Twitter um, the greatest manhunt of the 17th century, and I th- it tre- intrigued me. Uh, and I discovered that this huge manhunt was for anyone who'd signed the death warrant of King Charles I in 1649 or had sat as a, uh, as a judge at his trial. Um, they were ruthlessly hunted down under the terms of this thing called the Act of Oblivion, which when the royalists came back to the throne after England had been a republic for uh, 11 years... They uh, amnested everyone except anyone who'd been uh, involved in the killing of the king and hence the Act of Oblivion was the title of this legislation and I thought it was a great title for a novel. So anyway, the, uh, the manhunt was fascinating. I uh, the, So the, you love your research, don't yes. you? You love getting into yeah. historical research before you write. Exactly. So there was this uh, Act of Oblivion and I uh, the only thing it lacked was uh, the manhunt lacked was a manhunter so I decided to invent one. I thought that would be great to have a, have a guy on their tail and this went on for years and it went to Holland and uh, Germany and Switzerland and indeed in America and that's where the focus of the novel is because two of the regicides as they were called uh, fled to New England and hid there with a reward on their heads for for years trying to keep one step ahead of uh, of their pursuers Uh, and that's the story really Uh, essentially it's how they try to get away. The executions of many of these men, though, and it was, I think it was nearly all men, was it, yeah. was extraordinarily gruesome, the way that it was done. Yes, well, this, is, this was the punishment for high treason that had been introduced centuries earlier by Edward I, and for dealing when he dealt with the Scots, you remember William Wallace was, had this punishment, uh, hanging, drawing and quartering. Um, and uh, it was meted out to about uh, 15 or so of the men uh, that they caught. If you uh, agreed that it had been a terrible crime and you pleaded guilty and apologised, you got life imprisonment. Life meaning life, and very unpleasant it was too. Um, Nobody was ever let out. Uh, If you uh, pleaded not guilty... uh, you were sentenced to this very gruesome death in front of tens of thousands of people in London. Uh, and you know, I had to put it in the book, although uh, it, it it only occupies a brief space. But, I mean, I had to give some account of, of the brutality of the time. Is it also true that in some cases the dead were dug up from their graves and hung again? Yes. Um, Cromwell himself, the, Lord, the dead Lord Protector, his son-in-law, Ireton... Um, who'd been in charge here in Ireland after Cromwell's punitive expedition, uh, and John Bradshaw, who's been, who'd been president of the court that tried Charles I. They were all dug up from Westminster Abbey uh, and their bodies dragged to uh, Tyburn, present-day Marble Arch in London, and uh, they were hanged again. They were drawn and quartered. Their heads were then put on long poles at an angle so that they, the wizened, shrunken heads gazed down 
at the Westminster Hall, which incidentally was the scene of all the main law courts. So it was a busy, crowded area uh, full of courts, and these three people, these three men, stared down at everyone below for decades, actually, until finally they fell to bits and had to be taken away. Gruesome as it was, I suppose it was a pretty effective way for Charles II, was it, to say, don't you try this with me, because this might, what will happen to you? Yeah, Charles II wasn't actually quite as bloodthirsty as the as the people around him, or at least the um, Restoration uh, Party MPs. Uh, it was they who really wanted it. The original idea was they'd just make an example of four men and the rest, you know, would be go free but they it got out of hand actually and uh, Charles witnessed um, a couple of these executions but then he rather kept clear of it. You love this going back in history don't you? I mean you've gone further back you've gone into ancient Roman civilization previously you've done a lot of stuff brilliantly around the time of the second world war as well I mean, what do you look for in the story? I'm, I'm surprised even to hear that you found this germ of the idea on Twitter, because I would have thought a busy writer like yourself would be steering well clear of Twitter. Well, I can't resist Twitter, actually. I used to tweet a lot. I don't do it so much now. Um, well, you know, but you you just look where... Um, you never know where you're going to get an idea, you know. As you say, this is my 15th novel, and they've all come at me from various directions. Um, I'm fascinated by the past, and... All historical novels are contemporary novels, really, because what calls to you in history is generally something that has resonance now. And I think the Civil War, a divided country, uh, Britain's relations with America, uh, republicanism... I mean, it is incredible to think that England was a republic for 11 years in in the 17th century. Tell me about that. What difference did that make to the way people lived their lives in England at the time? Well, this is one of the great revolutionary events in world history, or certainly European history, that the English did this. Uh, Cromwell said, we shall cut off the the king's head with the crown upon it. In other words, they didn't only get rid of Charles I, they got rid of the whole institution. Um, this is this is a remarkable thing, 150 years ahead of the French, 250 years ahead of the Russians. I mean, uh, it was a sensational development, and the whole world, I think, changed a little after it. Um, and certainly England was changed forever, because although Charles II came back, the son of Charles I, from then on, there was a there was more. Uh, they could never really ignore Parliament, and in 1688, of course, there was the the settlement, and England became began to become a constitutional monarchy, which gave the kind of political stability, and indeed the freedom, um, to uh, encourage the kind of great scientific expansion that happened in London, around in the 17th century and onwards. Uh, so it was a, it was an epochal event in in world history actually I think and and rather overlooked I mean it, in English English literature goes on and on about the Tudors which is important uh, but these this is as important as well I think but the Tudors had real power as it compared to the monarchs from Charles II onwards were they more figureheads at that stage they became more like figureheads they still had a lot of residual power. Um, but essentially, they, you know, the warning was there, um, and they were never again to try and rule like an absolute monarch in the way that Charles the First did. Um, 
but I mean, you know, the American aspect, which is very much in the novel, is also important. These two men who fled to America, Colonel Goff and Colonel Wally, father-in-law and son-in-law, Colonel Wally was uh, Cromwell's cousin, they were sh protected by the, by the Puritan community in North America, um, particularly in New Haven, which was, run, which was extreme Puritan sect, run according to Mo the law of Moses. Um, they didn't recognize the authority of the king. And as a result, there is no modern-day state of New Haven. We, Massachusetts and Connecticut, in the end, did cooperate in the hunt for these guys. Um, but the way that the, the English Revolution is in the DNA of modern America, this extreme religious fundamentalism, um, the Puritanism that holds that so you can go to some places in New England even now and they, there's no alcohol on sale in the town. Um, I even think that Roe v. Wade, you know, is a this uh, rolling back, really, of, of right to abortion when a Catholic country such as Ireland uh, has made it available. Um, that is a hang-on from this era. So, I, you know, it was an interesting period to write about. It was a great adventure story, but it had some relevance for our time. Well, talking about our time, do you see there's a lot of parallels between what has happened in the United States in recent years with Trump there, Johnson in the UK, but you wouldn't see the sort of the Puritan element that has taken hold in American politics and social issues ever transferring itself to Britain, would you? No, I mean, mercifully, um, I think one of the effects of the fact that the Puritans were beaten here uh, is that religion was taken out of politics. I mean, I thought when I started writing the novel that I would have been on the parliamentary side, and I guess I would have been, but I realised I'm no Puritan. These guys were like the Protestant Taliban or ISIS. They, they destroyed uh, icons in churches. They banned music. Uh, they, they were re uh, repressive. Uh, and in the end, um, uh, England rejected this form of Protestantism, and I think it took religion out of politics to to, to, to maybe, a greater degree than in America. Anyway. Maybe in Britain, but not necessarily in Northern Ireland. No, that's true. But of course, we know where the <laughs> why the Northern Ireland settlement is there, um, and uh, rather like the Puritan settlement in um, America. You know, this is the influence of Cromwell, um, a, a most divisive and uh, dramatic and important figure. Astonishing that there is a statue of him outside the Houses of Parliament in London, given that no man did more to intimidate, close down and disrupt Parliament than Oliver Cromwell. You still keep a very close eye on politics. You come from a background as a political writer with the Sunday Times, the Observer, also working with the BBC. I have to ask you, given that we have you in Dublin here this week, we're watching on perhaps a little bit anxious about the elevation of Liz Truss to being the new Prime Minister to replace Boris Johnson. First of all, can I ask you about Johnson? I mean, are you glad to see the back of him? Or have we seen the back of him? Would you expect him to try and make a Churchillian comeback? He'll certainly try and make a comeback. I would be amazed if he doesn't. He'll pause to make some money, replenish his coffers, feed the numerous children he's responsible for. But then I, I would imagine that he will um, try and get back into power, um, that he will... He's a great... I know him a bit. He was a great fan of my Cicero books. And he went to see it when it was on stage in London several times. He will, like Cicero, dream of a second consulship, I'm sure. For him, um, you know, politics is a lifelong 
business. It's not something you go in, your chief executive, and then you leave after five or ten years, like Blair and Cameron. He will want to um, keep at it, I think. So we haven't heard the last of him. Don't relax. It's like the end of Halloween. Do you remember the movie when they look out at the lawn at the back <laughs> and the uh, monster is uh, gone? Uh, so uh, the sequel could be even more horrifying. Yes, yes, yes. Just okay. when you just when you thought it was safe to go back in the water to choose a different sequel. So could it be that he thinks Liz Truss will fail, and we'll get to her in a second, and the Tories will lose the next general election? And that will give him his opportunity to say, well, you made a mistake to get rid of me. I'm the only one who can win elections for you. The Conservative Party is going to have to rally around me again. Yes, I think that that's perfectly possible. Uh, uh, no political career uh, is, is over until you finally leave the table, cash in your chips and leave the table. And one thing I do know is that it's normally, it's a cyclical thing. And, uh, you know, you're high and then you're low uh, and then often when people are low, they leave. But if they stay around, they eventually the, the wheel starts to turn and they go up again. So I could envisage a situation in which uh, the party and the country would re-elect him. And I can envisage a situation where he might even, rather like Teddy Roosevelt at the beginning of the 20th century in America, run as a third party, run as a, a candidate for a, for a new party, perhaps a, a populist party in that sense. Uh, I doubt whether we've heard the last of him. And what about Liz Truss? Well, uh, you know, this is a very testing time to take over, to put it mildly. Um, and she is in a weak position. Actually, her majority in the country was only, she got 80,000 votes and he got 60,000 Sunak. So it's not that overwhelming a victory. And he and had she more. And she doesn't have majority support no. in the parliamentary party. No, she doesn't. And the Tory party is in a, is a, a, is a snake pit of treachery uh, and intrigue. And um, and personal thwarted ambition. She's got a lot of dangerous enemies on the, on the back benches. So I think she's in great peril. Uh, two years from now, that we'll be roughly at the beginning of a general election. Uh, can she hang on till then? I don't know. But if she does hang on till then, what chance of them winning? Uh, at the moment, it looks very unlikely. But is she a dangerous type of character in that she seems to literally do anything populist that'll temporarily or in the short term boost her own position. And we have considerable fears in Ireland, for example, that she will push through the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill, which for all the flustering and blustering Boris Johnson did, he wasn't prepared to end up going into a trade war with the European Union. But for the sake of appearances almost, she might just do it. Yes, I mean, paradoxically, Johnson, because he'd been a leader of the Brexit campaign, um, his credentials were irreproachable and that section of political opinion. She has to show the zeal of the newly converted. Uh, she will be trying to demonstrate her commitment and that may well push her uh, to a greater extreme than, than he would have gone to, simply because she has to for her political survival. Um, I mean, I was a great opponent, a strong opponent of Brexit, and uh, it seems to me that the Tory party made a pact with the devil, with UKIP, um, or, and um, the devil will now demand his due, but we will see. 
has it done great damage to Britain? Because I know sometimes the Brexiteers will say it's too early to say or, you know, it's all done now, so forget about it. But what's your assessment of where Britain stands at present as a result of divorcing itself from the European Union? Well, I mean, I think it's a a disaster on all sorts of levels. It's it's a disaster um, because I'm an internationalist and I don't like national borders. Um, And I think it's an economically harmful. Uh, It impedes free trade. Uh, We know that it reduces reduced the size of the British economy. It's putting great pressure on the currency. Um, So I think that... um, Nothing is ever closed in politics. Any idea, the the debate about Britain's place in Europe, relations with Europe, has been going on for centuries. It's not going to stop simply because of a referendum in 2016. I mean, it it may take 10, 20, 30 years, but um, uh, you can't can't end the debate forever. And the majority was very narrow. Never forget that, 17 million to 16 million. You're clearly still really engaged by politics and current affairs, despite the fact that you've had such a wonderful career writing historical novels. Do you ever miss it? Do you ever regret maybe perhaps having moved away from that part of your life? Not for a single instant <laughs> do I regret it. I've, been, I've had 30 years now, starting with Fatherland in 1992, uh, um, writing novels, which is really what I feel is my vocation and what I love doing. Uh, And I'm very relieved to be out of covering politics, to be honest, because in the days that I was more involved, um, I think the people were, the politicians were more interesting. They were bigger figures. I mean, maybe that's just because I'm getting old. But I mean, people like Roy Jenkins compared to, who was a friend of mine, compared to anyone else in this cabinet. Um, Thatcher, who I never uh, supported myself, but, you know, you can see she was the most formidable character. There was a clash of ideas. And um, um, I don't know, the pe- the figures just seem bigger. So, you know, I'd sooner write about Oliver Cromwell and these figures from the past, Cicero, whoever it may be, uh, than try and write about Boris Johnson and Liz Truss. I think everyone's delighted that you're writing these novels. The latest book, Act of Oblivion. Robert Harris, thank you so much for being with us here today. The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Weekdays from 4.30. Today.